Crime Matters, in collaboration with Slaking Thirst's podcast, presents the Christian mythic narrative, The Deep History of the World. PrimeMatters.com is a groundbreaking project of educational outreach of the University of Mary, awakening the Catholic imaginative vision. Episode 22, The New Moses. As Jesus undertook his mission, he had a delicate task to perform. He was coming to Israel as their Messiah, the long-promised anointed one. But the people to whom he was coming had mistaken notions as to who the Messiah would be and how he would act. Their reading of the ancient prophecies had led them to think that the Messiah would be a king after the fashion of David, only on a much larger human scale. David had been a great fighter, a warrior who had battled and defeated Israel's enemies and secured for himself a powerful throne. In the same way, the Messiah would raise a military standard and lead the Jews against their enemies, calling his people back to faithfulness to the covenant, establishing them in freedom, and going on to conquer a great empire in the name of God. How this messianic understanding fit with the prophetic picture of a suffering and sacrificial Messiah, was not clear. Some thought that such dark prophecies did not refer to the Messiah at all, but to Israel as a whole. Others conjectured that there might be two Messiahs, one suffering and one victorious. Jesus thus needed to reveal himself as Messiah, as the one who would bring about the promised kingdom, while at the same time teaching Israel the true nature of that kingdom, which was to be fundamentally different from what most of them expected, a kingdom not of this world. He needed to negotiate the highly volatile messianic hopes in the air that could easily lead into mistaken and even dangerous and bloody channels. It's clear from the gospel accounts how carefully he went about his business, at times, he kept the knowledge of his messianic identity secret. At other times, he acknowledged that identity, but quickly recast its meaning. At still other times, he spoke and acted boldly in ways that made clear his messianic claims. At all points, he was the master of events, not allowing himself to be shuffled along or manipulated by false expectations of whatever kind. In revealing himself to Israel, Jesus took upon himself the identity of a recognizable Jewish figure, that of the prophet rabbi. The long Jewish tradition had made such a figure both revered and turbulent, as the recent history of John the Baptist had shown. To gather a group of disciples together, to live with them and to teach them the ways of God, was what rabbis, teachers of the law, customarily did. To go from town to town and engage in public preaching and prophetic action was rarer, but it was in keeping with a venerable prophetic tradition. None of this was strange or shocking to the Jews. Those who heard Jesus or heard news of him thought him to be a prophet like Elijah, Jeremiah, or John the Baptist, and his own followers often called him rabbi. 
What made Jesus so arresting to those who heard him, either thrilling or disturbing, depending on how one judged it, had to do with the manner of his teaching and the evident power of his actions. All were astounded by the authority with which he spoke and acted, especially for one who had received no formal training. He was a rabbi, yes, but not like other rabbis. He spoke in an entirely different key. He was a prophet, true, but seemingly more than a prophet, because he often seemed to be speaking not in another's name, but in his own. By what he said and by what he did, Jesus continually provoked the question in the minds of all who saw and heard him, just who does this man think he is? It was exactly the right question to be asking. An example of the boldness of Jesus' prophetic stance can be seen in the core body of his teaching that has come down to us as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ascended a height, as Moses had done, and from that height he delivered a law. To his Jewish hearers, so well-versed in the scriptures, it was evident that he was claiming by this act to be the prophet promised by Moses and to be handing down a new law, one that, in Jesus' own words, would not abolish the law given at Sinai, but would fulfill it. If this were not brazen enough, Jesus spoke of this new law as if he himself were its source. There was no exodus-like drama here of God resting on the top of the mountain in fire and thunder, and the prophet Moses going courageously up to meet him, the Israelites, meanwhile, cowering in wonder beneath. Instead, it was Jesus himself who occupied the mountain, and his disciples were gathered there with him. He then delivered the new law with breathtaking authority, not, thus says the Lord, but, you have heard it said, but I say to you. This was the decisive formula that lay behind the whole of his teaching. It astonished and troubled those who heard it. The moral content of Jesus' teaching was in keeping with Jewish law and tradition, but he consistently raised the stakes and deepened the demands of that law. Jews had been taught to love their neighbor. Now Jesus insisted that they do more and love their enemies. Jews knew that it was wrong to take another's life, Jesus taught that they were not even to speak against others. Jews knew that they should act toward others with justice. Jesus told them that they should take no revenge for offenses and should forgive those who did evil. Jews were aware that adultery was an affront to God and an act to be carefully avoided. Jesus told them that even thinking about it would lead to judgment. It had been hard enough to keep the moral precepts of the law given by Moses. Hard, but still remotely possible. But this new teaching of Jesus seemed simply impossible. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How was that to be obeyed? The teaching of Jesus necessarily implied something further. It demanded a fundamental change in the inner moral being of his hearers, such that what was previously impossible 
would become possible. Jesus was telling earthbound creatures that they needed to learn to fly. If this were not to be idealistic fluff, it would demand in Jesus' followers the growing of wings. It pointed to a qualitatively different kind of law, one that would take root in each person and transform the faculties of the mind and the will. It assumed divine power for a radical change of heart. Such bold teaching was difficult to take seriously. It could seem the result of a mistaken or even a deluded mind, and so liable to be shrugged off as unworthy of serious notice. So it might have been, except for another quality displayed by Jesus. He not only spoke with great authority, which was perhaps easy enough to manage, he also did deeds of astonishing power that were not at all easy to manage and that left his onlookers frightened, amazed, and exhilarated by turns.